This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Cape Talk, the world of science with Dr. Chris Smith, the naked scientist. Indeed, the world of science with AKA the naked scientist. Morning, Chris. Morning, John. Are you well? Yeah, not too bad. I'm quite excited, actually, because we've got this really cool experiment, which we're going to do next week. And actually, everyone listening to Cape Talk might want to get involved in this because some People who I met just randomly recently came back to me and said, do you know what, we've just secured a helium balloon, a massive one that we're going to send to the edge of space. And we're wondering if you might like to get involved and do an experiment with it. And you know what I'm like. So I said, oh, yeah, let's do this. And um, so we had to think about what we could do. And then we thought there's a lot of misinformation around about sounds in space and this whole claim from the Ridley Scott series about in space no one can hear you scream. So why don't we test it? So what we've done is we've built this apparatus where we've mechanically decoupled a microphone and a speaker. In other words, we've got them suspended on a special frame so that sounds can only travel between the two through the ambient air separating the two. We've rigged this up to a computer. Uh, We're using a Raspberry Pi, which we've written our own software for. So we are taking screams, playing them out of the speaker and recording them into the microphone at different altitudes, which we're going to be able to log because we've got an altimeter with us as well. And we're going to play these screams as the balloon goes up to 120,000 feet. And we'll be able to see how the sound changes as the ambient air pressure changes. And then we'll recover the whole lot down to Earth after a flight time of about four hours. And we should have this lovely rendition of all these screams. So if anyone would like to hear what you sound like, not you necessarily, unless you want to get involved, screaming in space, then they can send their files in. I've had some beautiful screams. I've just had a school of uh, girls um, at a girls' school in Australia have just sent me their screams, actually. So if anyone would like to send me a scream that you'd like us to send into near space on your behalf, now is your opportunity. That was very good, actually. So there you go. There's the gold standard scream. So if anyone would like to send their scream in, we'd love hearing from kids and people who are early career scientists. Send your scream recorded on your mobile device or however you you want to record it to chris at thenakedscientist.com. And best screams, A, we're going to air them on the radio, but we'll decide which the best ones are and then we'll send them into space for you. Paul, you've already phoned in with a question. Yours is? Yeah, Doctor. Hello, and hello, John. Um... I was listening to some cricket commentators on the radio the other day, and they were talking about the advantages or disadvantages of contact lenses. And as far as I'm concerned, the contact lens just uh, fixes your eyesight that's defective. But can a contact lens be manufactured to give a batsman better eyesight than perfect eyesight and give him an advantage? Where are you going with that? (laughs) (laughs) 
Exactly. Um, and we'll take any advantage we can get in the South African cricketing setup, Chris. I didn't like to say anything. <laughs> Not at the moment. But no, the answer is, actually, you can improve on human vision a bit with uh, contact lenses and other things. Some people, for instance, although we have eyesight that we call normal, it's, it's a range. There are some people with even more acute eyesight, some people with less. They've all got normal eyesight, but it's because of the optics on the front of the eye and how well you can focus the light to a point on your retina. So, for instance, there are people who have what they re- regard as normal eyesight, but they have laser correction of their vision, and it puts them beyond what we call normal. So, yes, it's perfectly possible to produce a contact lens that will focus the light a bit more and would give you even more acute vision. The other thing to bear in mind is that you have good visual performance over a range of distances but if you're mainly operating at a certain distance and you're and you can't focus quite as well at that distance because of age for example you you can also use contact lenses to give you the edge over that as well so the answer is yes you could do that but the question then exists as to whether that really is going to improve your performance because when someone is performing in sports at a very high level, and a good example of this, we're going to start seeing the tennis soon, and we've also seen Andy Murray making his comeback this week. We're going to, we're going to start seeing Wimbledon happening, as long as it doesn't get rained off too much. And if you look at how a tennis player plays, most people think they're looking at the ball. Actually, those balls are coming at those players so fast that the, the visual parts of their brain that decode conscious vision can't process that information fast enough for that person to react in time. They are reacting to far more than just the ball coming at them. What they're tending to look at, and, and we actually ran a, a program about this recently on The Naked Scientist, we called it Extremely Fast, and we sent one of our scientists to go and work with a sports physiologist who uses eye-tracking technology. And you can look at what a trained sports person looks at when they're playing a fast and furious game of tennis. And they're not looking at where the person puts their arms and legs and that kind of thing. They're looking at far more than that. They're looking at the posture of the person. They're looking at the position of the body. And they're, they're actually attending to a lot more things in the environment than just where the ball is. The ball, by the time it's left the, the racket of the person launching it or the bat of the cricketer, is travelling far too fast for you to really make any adjustments within that timescale that, that are really meaningful. It's what goes ahead of that. So I'm not sure that just having slightly more acute vision is going to make a huge amount of difference difference in this context i think actually it's all to do with the, the the lead up to that but again if there are any professionals any any sports professionals who can give us some tips be really interesting to hear what your strategy is too yeah i, I was watching joe wilfred songer go down to roger federer at the german grass court tournament yesterday afternoon and the winners were being hit at somewhere around 170 kilometers an hour so you can that that's the speed of the ball and i spoke to a sports scientist recently ross tucker and asked him why it is that Tennis has to be played in a hushed atmosphere, whereas cricket, the crowd's making an enormous noise. But tennis, you know, b- before the serve is served, the crowd has to be quieted. And he said to me that there's an enormous amount of information that comes from the sound of the ball le- thwacking the racket. And if there's ambient noise, then you're not picking up those clues and you're less able to deal with what is coming your way. Uh, Paul, lovely question, and I really enjoyed listening to Chris's answer. Jen in Komiki, what's your question? Hi, good morning, John and Chris. Um, um, I'm not sure if this is a scientific question, but I'm hoping you can shed some light. Um, A couple of years ago, I experienced something similar to déjà vu, but we've all had that. This was far more intense, and things seemed to be happening 
five times over and over and over again. Um, I, I, at the time, was very disorientated, um, apparently hyperventilating. Um, I'm not quite sure what... I was convinced that everything that happened, it, it, it wasn't deja vu. It was going round and round and round and round. So I would walk around the room, pick something up, put it down, uh, walk around the room again, the thing would be there again. I'd have to pick it up and, you know, put it down again. Everything happened like five times over. Um, uh, my brother, who was a doctor, came over and he couldn't explain it. He called the paramedics. Um, yeah, they couldn't find anything. But I'm wondering what, have you ever heard of this phenomenon? What is, is it science? Is it, I don't know what it is. Hello, Jen. Well, this is an interesting uh, one, and and, uh, and I'm glad to hear that you seem to have recovered since. It does sound like an extreme case of déjà vu, but then you have to ask, well, what is déjà vu? And I won't make the crappy joke about that. Have we had that question before? Because we really have had that question before quite a few times. But the thing that's going on with déjà vu, and it tends to happen most when we are either very tired, very very sleep deprived, distressed about something. Or it can also happen occasionally when people develop certain forms of epilepsy, seizures, or just one-off seizures, or it can be a side effect of certain drugs. So, for instance, people who who have drugs for, say, anaesthetics, for example, some people who take very strong painkillers for something, for example, and sometimes it can just be an infection. If you've caught a virus infection which is neuroinvasive, there are some viruses which can, and, and part of their modus operandi is that they get into the central nervous system. This can sometimes trigger disorientation. So it could be any of those things. The fact that it's resolved and hasn't recurred is very reassuring. If it does happen again, you ought to go and get it checked out. But it, it sounds like it could be one of the above. But probably what was happening in that situation is that whatever the circuits are in the brain that are concerned with learning, memory and behaviour are triggering off too often. And when people do get very sleep deprived, they tend to have more of these sorts of experiences. And you'll talk to new parents, for example, who are having nights of of sleeplessness because of a a young baby. And they'll say they, they do get these very, very vivid recollection replay experiences and it seems to be something to do with the way that the brain doesn't quite tie up its activity properly when it gets very sleep deprived so it could be that but again the other reasons i've given are also reasonable contenders and martin you're up next what is your question uh yes i just want to know um why is it that people hum uh you know when you say doing a task or whatever out comes this tuneless humming and also sometimes is it, is it more common in in the, in the elderly uh, why do people hum? Because they don't know the words. Why do well, is why the do usual. old people uh, annoy? Yeah, that's yeah, the usual answer. Why do old answer. people annoyingly hum? <laughs> the other thing you can't do is it's very hard to hum if you hold your nose. If you try that one, if you hold your nose and and then hum, very very difficult. You very quickly build up too much pressure in your mouth and you you can't carry on. The answer is that we often talk to ourselves and it's almost like we're giving ourselves a running commentary of what we're doing because we're providing an additional route of feedback into the nervous system 
in order to enable us to concentrate better or focus better on the task in hand. Some people stick their tongue between their teeth and poke it out when they're concentrating. Other people look away from you and look at the floor to help them to concentrate to avoid distractions, for example. Some people find that singing or humming or commentating on what they're doing is a, is a form of reinforcement. So I suspect it's a mechanism or a technique evolved by certain people to help them to focus because it eliminates other distractions. And perhaps keep some company. I mean, if, if it is true that old people hum more than young people, um, old people, sometimes the, you know, the, the partner has moved on, the children have gone to other countries, and they spend more time alone than young people do, so they hum to keep themselves company, maybe? Yeah, and as I say, it also helps that uh, if you don't know the words, but you still like the tune nonetheless, you can fill in the gaps with a hum. Bill, you're up next from Gordon's Bay. Hello. Hello. Hello there. Um, many years ago, I asked Chris this same question, but I had to go out, and I never got the answer. <laughs> <laughs> and my question is... Excuse me, Bill. <laughs> One would think it reasonably logical that if you ask a question, you remain around to hear the answer. Yeah, but I sent you an SMS, Chris. Uh, oh, right. Fair <laughs> and enough. Then the, and the wife said, don't forget, you've got to pop out. So, uh, you know, when wives talk, you obey. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, okay then. And then what my question was, I was staying in Essex in the UK, and when you look up in the sky, you always see jet streams. It's like the spaghetti junction. But here in the southern hemisphere, you don't hardly see them. Yeah, I think and I, I wonder why there's so I, many. I think in the I remember hemisphere. this question, and the point I oh, think I you? made, I, I do, and I, I, I think I remember. At least, I don't know if it was you, but someone has asked this before, and I, I think the answer I supplied was it's purely a case of of how many flights there are. Heathrow is the world's biggest, busiest airport, and is not yes. too far away, and is in the flight path from. Uh, well, Essex is in the flight path from there, as is uh, Stansted is in the middle of Essex, yeah, we were and Gatwick. Stansted, I think. And with, yeah. with three extremely busy airports and the world's, or Europe's, most populous, busiest city, London, city in the middle of it, it isn't surprising that the aircraft traffic density over that patch of England is very, very high. And therefore, you're going to see where aircraft are, you're going to have a high likelihood of seeing these sorts of contrails. Whereas other cities oh. that don't have the same density of flights, because these things dissipate quite quickly, at Heathrow, you've got a flight coming and going every minute. Whereas in other airports, the frequency can be lower. Now, there'll be peak times of day when it picks up like that, but they won't be relentless and sustained like they are over bits of London. And therefore, when you look in the sky over southern England, you're much more likely to see these things on any given occasion because it's a relentless stream of air traffic continuously. Other places, not so much. I think that's probably it's an observer bias that you've, you've got there. Um, please, we need more questions for Chris, 021-446-0567. A question that arose around a dinner table that I was present at um, a couple of nights ago, Chris. Why is it that the hair on your head and the hair on your beard, if you're a male and are growing a beard, why is it that that continues to grow and grow and grow and grow and would keep growing unless you cut it, which most of us do fairly regularly? But the hair under your arms, for example, gets to a length and then doesn't grow anymore. This is, John, all to do with the relative length of the growth phase of hair. Hair follicles, which are special collections of cells in the skin surface called hair follicles, they produce the, the filament of hair and they have three phases to their function. 
Phase one is an anagen phase. This means growth. And the, the, while that phase is in action, the hair is growing and becoming longer. Then after that, the two other phases, there's a catagen phase, which is when the hair drops out, and then a thelgen phase, when the hair follicle rests, and then the process resets. Now, under genetic control, different hair follicles in different patches of the body have different relative lengths of those different components, those phases. And the hairs on your head, the anagen growth phase, lasts three or more years. Whereas the anagen phase for, say, a curly hair in your groin, a curly hair under your arm, or uh, an eyelash, is a few weeks. So as a result, these hairs vary in length because they're not allowed to grow for more than a certain period of time. Uh, And that's why they drop out before they become a problem or too long because you wouldn't want to have to plait your underarm hair that would be inconvenient eyelashes only grow for as i say a matter of days to weeks before they fall out uh, head hair years and that's the reason can i just return to one other question because last week we had a lovely question about boxing and someone being thumped in the eye and being warned don't blow your nose and i'm very grateful to david kaliski who is a retired radiologist uh, from Cape Town, who got in touch after the programme because I said, well, one thing that you're going to do is mess up your tear duct if you get biffed in the face, and, and that wouldn't be good to blow your nose afterwards. But he's actually given the proper medical answer because I didn't know this. So thank you, David. Here is what David said. He says the weakest part of the orbit, this is the eye socket, is the lamina papyracea, which separates the orbit from the nasal cavity. This is closely followed by the floor of the orbit. The signs of enophthalmos, which is the a sunken eye and muscle entrapment can be obscured initially by soft tissue swelling. So when you get thumped in the eye, you can actually damage those bones and rupture them. But because of swelling, you don't realise you've done this. And with a medial, so middle blowout fracture, the communication with the nasal cavity, so in other words, that bit of area becomes in in, uh, communication with your nasal cavity means that when you blow your nose you would get a phenomenon called surgical emphysema where you push air into the soft tissues around the eye and that's why you then get your eye rapidly appearing to blow up if you blow your nose and you've got one of these sorts of fractures so that's how you can get this sort of injury miss it but you shouldn't blow your nose if you have it until someone's fixed it because you can inject air into the tissue and that's called surgical emphysema so thank you very much david for that detailed answer and our next question, Chris, comes from Mark, you in Deep River. Good morning. Good morning, John. Morning, Chris. Um, John, I'm so sorry you're hearing this question because it was a rapid-fire question. Um, uh, I wanted to know the mushroom cloud that forms after a, after a nuclear bomb. What actually makes it form in that specific shape? Well, a lovely question. The answer to this is that when the bomb first goes off, and these mushroom clouds obviously happen because they're detonated at ground level, Initially, you produce an enormous amount of heat from one of these explosions and the heat superheats the air and the dust and other things that are obliterated and this makes them very low density and very low density things float. So the hot air is pushed up in the air by being displaced upwards by colder, denser air coming in round it. So it rockets upwards to start with. But as it rockets upwards, it encounters colder air and lower pressures so that the air expands and cools and it therefore spreads out once it gets to that magic altitude where it's lost the upward momentum, the air is expanded and cooled. And so that's why you get this initial thrust up in the air as the thing goes up, but then it gets to a certain height, slows down, expands, cools, 
condenses other things and water vapour around it and you get the spreading of the mushroom. I agree with you. What a lovely question and thanks for a great answer. Roger, you're up next. Hi, morning, gentlemen. I just want to know, can you get an allergic reaction uh, to electricity? Hello, Roger. I think the answer is almost certainly not for the simple reason that your body is electrical. Every cell in your body, with a few rare exceptions, and including dead skin, is actually electrified. And this is achieved because you have a membrane which is oily and therefore an insulator, and you pump using special tiny protein motors which burn energy and move electrical charges, electricity from one side of that membrane to another. So cells push out sodium ions and pull in some potassium ions but they push out more sodium than out than potassium is brought in so you end up with a net negative charge inside the cell and these cells use this electrical difference in order to do very important tasks like take up sugars get rid of waste products or if you're a nerve cell send messages if you're a heart cell to beat so you need electricity What you might be referring to, though, is that if you encounter an electric shock, because this is unpleasant and painful, then it can actually cause recruitment or stimulation of the pain-sensing fine-caliber nerves in the skin and soft tissues. Those nerves are, as well as being connected to your spinal cord, they also connect or terminate near cells called mast cells in the skin. And mast cells make and contain histamine. And when you have an allergic reaction in the skin, it's a discharge of histamine. So if you get an electric shock to your hand, you can, because the nerve messages go up to the spinal cord but also back down the other bits of the nerve and onto these mast cells, you can cause some of the mast cells to discharge some histamine into the skin in response to an electric shock. So you will get a little bit of itching as though you were having an allergic reaction. I don't think it's an allergy to the electricity per se. I think it's because of the consequence of the electricity on your nervous system. That would be my speculation. And then I think this will probably be the last question we have time for. Uh, Roger, you're up from Hermanus. Hi there, John, and morning to you, Chris. Um, I've got a, a question about gravity that maybe you can help me with. Um, we all understand um, what gravity is, and Newton expanded it and, and developed the laws that we all understand. Einstein also uh, uh, came up with the concept of warping of space-time. Um, but my question is why? Why does Quentin Newton mass attract mass? And why does mass cause a warp in space-time? Uh, that's really my question, is the, is the why of gravity? I don't know if you can do that in the two and a half minutes we have left, Chris. <laughs> I'll have a go. The answer is that Newton knew that his maths worked and was supported by observation that he made very good predictions that were borne out by testing experimentally. What Newton couldn't explain is why this was the case. He just knew that massive objects seemed to attract other massive objects. And Henry Cavendish, who was a very bright guy but clearly a little bit strange himself, uh, was able to measure this magnificent constant, the big capital G, which is the gravitational constant. And, And so we had this set of calculations that could make extraordinarily accurate predictions about how things would behave over the range of sort of scales that humankind was encountering for hundreds of years. And by that I mean, you know, when you look at planets going around the, the sun, for example. So in, in, uh, in relatively small scales in the scale of the universe, it seemed to work beautifully. So people were happy with it 
even though they couldn't explain it. But obviously, just because something works, it's not satisfactory to say it works, so I'm going to sit there and be comfortable with that. We want to know why something works. And this was the leap that Einstein made about 100 years ago now, actually, which was to say, well, hang on a minute, what are these massive objects doing in order to mean that we see the behaviour that we do? And is the uh, Newtonian explanation or calculation, is that accurate enough? And so Einstein's intellectual leap was to then envisage space as something we now dub space-time because various other things led him down the path of considering that, that space and time are one and, and, and bound uniquely together. And then realised that actually if you have a massive object that deforms the space-time in some way, then actually this gives you an insight into what gravity might be. So gravity is some deformation of the fabric of space-time caused by enormous masses. Why it works the way it does, and why gravity is so weak, because actually gravity is a very weak force compared to the other forces that we have, things like the electromagnetic force, we don't know why that is. We, we actually have no idea why those things behave the way they do. But uh, Einstein's predictions were then borne out by further testing, and in fact a few weeks ago the, uh, there was um, the 100th anniversary of Eddington's experiment, where Eddington went to Africa and America and South America and photographed an eclipse in order to see how stars were were apparently moved in the night sky by the warping of space-time um, by, by light passing by an enormous object, a star. And so we knew that Einstein had even better predictions and better ability to, to do this than Newton's maths. So Newton works a bit, but we don't know why. But when you get to extraordinary scales like the scale of a universe, you need Einstein's interpretation. But again, we don't know why this happens, we just know that it does. And I'm sorry that's a slightly unsatisfactory answer, but that's where physics is at the moment. Chris, thank you very, very much. The Naked Scientist back next Friday with Rafael Mimolotto. who will be back on the radio on Monday morning. Hi, Chris. I think that you should send a message from a mom <laughs> scolding her kids to clean their room up to space. So this is from Noir, and the message is, Children, come and clean your room! Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.